here. This is mainly for, it's entirely for the people who are leaving. If you want to hang around and listen to it, you're welcome to. So just a short while ago, we made lots of plans to come up here. All of us. And we had to arrange babysitters and people to watch pets and water plants and the cover for us and arrangements regarding our job, perhaps save up some money. And in the mind imagined all kinds of things. I'm thinking now of those of you who are new to this, about what it would be like and whether you'd be able to do it or not, and whether it would be fun or be very hard. And then we pull up on Friday night and bring all of our baggage upstairs, and there's this plain room with just a few things to use, and we start to create a little world for ourselves make it as pleasant as possible. And then go through what you have gone through, whatever that has been for you. And now it's time to close down that room, put everything back in the suitcase, let somebody else worry about what to do with the room to try to make it pleasant and livable. And somebody else will be right on your tail in a little while. And now it's, ter- it's time for you to leave. So is there anything special, any advice, what to do when you get back? Mostly there isn't. That is, whatever it is we've been doing here, it's really not that different when you go back. There are a few practical suggestions. But by and large, life goes on. In other words, we've been developing awareness here learning about ourselves, and we have the same possibility, the same opportunity when we go home. Granted, it's perhaps a little easier to do here because there are constant reminders and the situation is set up to really help us all do that. And you might say when we get home, the situation is set up to make us all not do it. Almost demonically organized to see to it that we're hardly ever aware or in the present moment. Okay, so we're home. And let's start off tomorrow morning, bright and early. The retreat retreat is now a memory, perhaps putting together some words to characterize it to your friends, like another experience in the album, the inner album. And so you wake up, And it's possible as you wake up with practice to remember to immediately before you do anything, before you get to start doing anything in the day, to bring attention to what it's like to be lying there in bed. One good way is, and this won't surprise you, is just to come to the breath. You're still breathing. There it is, in, out, or rising and falling. 
And with that as a starting point, perhaps wash. So you're taking a shower and your mind runs to the carpool that you're about to do and how you've simply got to stop being part of this carpool and get your own car so you don't have to put up with this or get into a more congenial carpool or why aren't they on time. And the shower is going on and the body is getting cleaned or cooled, but you're not there. Well, what you can do now is remember, oh, and come back to the shower just as you come back to the breath. Simply come back and experience showering happening to you. And then the mind will race away again and start planning out what it's going to do and who it's going to tell what to and so forth. And you see that and you come back to the shower once again. Perhaps in just a two-minute shower, you've been taken away a hundred times. But every time you come back, especially if it's done by easing back gently, and without any achievement in mind, you know, some goal that you're going to get someplace incredible if you just do this enough times. You just come back so that you can take the shower, so that you're more alive because what you're encountering in that moment is showering, and that's what your life is in that moment. It's taking a shower, or it can be. And you wipe yourself in sim- uh, similar fashion, and... Pr- what, would be, what I would suggest is you set up a situation, a room or a corner of a room with a mat and a cushion, and then you fold your legs. Fold your legs or sit in a chair and you do what you've been doing here. For how long? I haven't the slightest idea. We can set standard times, and I know often people like that, 20 minutes or an hour a day, and sometimes there are lots of different formulas that we're given. If you, can only, if, you, if you can enter into silence for one hour a day, you'll be in, that'll be incredible, wonderful. But I don't know where that comes from. Or 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. I don't know where that comes from either. So I think it's very much of an individual basis. So rather than make up something, what I would suggest is that you find your own limit and go a little bit beyond it. So that if you find, by and large, and of course it will change from day to day, but by and large, uh, 20 minutes is an eternity, then you may have to deal with that. Perhaps go to 25 minutes or even move back to 15. I don't know. Because if the practice becomes tedious for you, as if you're pushing yourself too hard, and remember, you won't have all of us, this big cheering squad, you know, telling you to keep sitting, keep awake. You won't, probably. So settle into what's reasonable for you and let it naturally grow so that 20 minutes becomes 25 minutes and and so forth. Now, it's not to say that the more you sit, the wiser you are. I'm not saying that. Because the quality of attention is so important. Just what are you doing during those moments on the cushion? How alert are you? How willing are you to learn from what's coming up? And if you can, it would be nice if you can do it a second time, but you may not be able to, and you're the only one who can tell. The time may come where things get switched around. At first, I'm speaking now in, in big generalities, having come back from lots of retreats and having talked to many people who've come back from lots of retreats and often for the first time, 
at first assuming that you found this approach of value. If you didn't find it of value, I think this is really important, don't necessarily assume that meditation is not for you. If you found that you really could not connect with the teachers, the teaching, the place, or a lot of it, and it's not simply that you're a crabby kind of person or committed to being cynical or skeptical all the time, but you just didn't feel a, a connection, an authentic connection, don't assume that, that means you shouldn't meditate or that you weren't cut out to meditate because there really are quite a few different styles and approaches and techniques. And the reason there are so many is because there are so many different kinds of people. So if you found that you didn't connect, then search, keep looking. Perhaps come here for other teachers or go to other places or try other approaches and read. But if you did find it congenial, then it's probably helpful to keep it simple. That is, to try to stick with the approach if it's been useful and not do an enormous amount of window shopping. This is mainly meant, I guess, for people living in New York and Cambridge. (laughs) If you live in Hoboken, New Jersey, it may be no problem. But if you live in Cambridge, there's so many options that people are drowning in creative potential (laughs) without settling on anything. At first, assuming that you found the practice to be of some value to you, typically what happens is you try to fit it into your already existing schedule. Let's see. Well, I I have a half an hour here or I have 45 minutes there. And so meditation is kind of slipped in to available spots varying from day to day. I'll say when. Let's be optimistic and very positive. When the practice starts to really take off, the priorities turn around for many people, maybe for everyone, for all I know. Instead of trying to stick meditation in where there's some, a few free moments, you value it so much that you really rearrange your life in order to serve meditation. Again, I don't mean that you necessarily become a monk or a nun or that you give up any of the things that you have. But within the range of what, you, what your life is like, when you come to see its value, more and more you start to examine the way you live. And it's not unusual to find that there are many things that we've been doing for a long time that we really don't value. They're, maybe they once worked for us, but they're now dead. Really, nothing there, no juice. And yet, we're still doing it over and over again or even destructive things that we have a tendency to perpetuate. And so you'd be more motivated to investigate and to see some things that can really be let go of and replaced with something that uh, is helping you, is beneficial. Okay. What to do when you sit Uh, I'm really not going to go into that in the amount of time that we have because I think we've gone into it adequately. For those of you who are very new, I think you're equipped to launch a sitting practice, to begin a sitting practice. So what other things might help would be company. Now, if you live in a place where 
there isn't there are no centers like this or not a whole lot of people doing it it may be difficult but sometimes you can find one person one like-minded person and people have found it very very helpful to meet and sit together sometimes just once a week other kinds of supports of course are books and tapes come back to places like this retreat centers like this to uh, get the help that they offer so that your practice becomes stronger. And even with all of these suggestions, most of your life is now left still unaccounted for. So what do we do with that? And here, the attitude is similar to what we've been, we've been doing all weekend. Uh, but what seems to be true, it's the easiest to forget once people come home. And that is to try to bring this quality of alert, caring sensitivity into all of the actions that make up our life. It's not really a technique. If you hear the significance of what's being said, it's a radical appraisal of your life. It's scrutinizing how you live. But it's not so much doing lots of thinking about how you live. Probably you've done that already and do that, know how to do that. It's much more bringing a very innocent quality of attentiveness to your life, to your actual lived life, to begin to see, how do I actually live? So let's say if you're in a relationship. Oh yeah, I'm in a relationship. Well, that word covers a lot. Just what does that mean? Just to become very simple about what it's like to be in a relationship. Again, in a non-judgmental way. Begin to see how we actually do that, how we actually live. What is our work? What do we really do for a living? How do we earn a living? What do we eat? How do we care for this body? How are we with our parents, with our friends? Again, I don't have a particular theory. It's not a a theory of how to have a successful anything, but rather an encouragement in a sense, to begin from scratch, zero point. It has nothing to do with your age. Whatever your age, begin to look at your life as you live it. And as we live out our life, it's possible to bring this kind of sensitivity into it every step along the way. Needless to say, we forget, and then we remember, and then we forget, and then we remember. Again, it's not to come up with the perfect lifestyle, although some improvements may come out of this. The process itself is fulfilling and can actually be quite beautiful. Just the process of living more consciously, beginning to grasp what our life actually is as we live it. Seeing the particular ways in which joy is in our life, the particular ways in which suffering is in our life. Now, life itself, it seems, is both horrible dreadful, nightmarish, and also extraordinary and beautiful. Just ordinary life. I'm not talking about getting to any exalted spiritual states. It seems to have both in balance, and sometimes it's more one than the other. What's being suggested here is that we come to take a look at how we actually live, underlining actually, as many times as we can, actually live, 
leave all the... You see, because the reason I'm emphasizing it is that often we have a scenario about ourselves, a, a, a resume, a kind of psychological resume. I'm such and such, I used to be this and that, and if I keep practicing, I'll become and it's something else. None of these descriptive terms will do justice. There's very careful, detailed sensitivity to, the, to just our ordinary day. Okay, now, one very important thing that many people have found to be helpful can flow directly from this practice and you already have the tools to do it. That is, in addition, I'm assuming now that you'll be doing some sitting, some walking at home or wherever. I don't know your situation. But in addition to that, bringing wisdom into action. Now, during the brief time of a weekend, and I know it may have seemed like a endless for the first time and such a hot weekend as well. But still, in a certain way, the basic instructions are remarkably simple. And yet, it also takes some time for refinement, for understanding certain things. For example, central in the Buddhist teaching, and if you read any of the Buddhist teachings or if you hear any of the tapes, you hear it many, many times, is that attachment and suffering are very closely related. The tendency to grasp at and push away is very linked to suffering. Just take that one statement. If you just take that home with you, it could be very helpful. See if it's, tr- see if it's true. From time to time, or as often as you can, we all find ourselves unhappy in a given moment. Perhaps things aren't, are a little bit off or we feel a little bit sad, or disappointed, or annoyed, or bored, or restless, and so forth. In that given moment, bring the very simple kind of attention that we've been developing here to that. And there's a question which at first you may ask in words a little bit, but eventually words are not needed. And the question would be, why am I suffering right now? Why is this happening to me? And very often, even without the words, you can begin to see right there in the moment, not a long conceptual exploration later on, although that can be useful too, especially if you miss it. But it's tremendously helpful to be able to see right in the moment that something is happening that's harmful, that's hurting you. And then to inquire what set of causes and conditions needed to be necessary for this to happen. And see if such things as attachment are there or not. Or whatever vocabulary you like, just in a very innocent, naive way, begin to try to understand what's happening. Now, if you begin to do that, little by little, forms of suffering start to thin out and and fall away. The only way you can confirm that is by giving it a real try. sitting practice, coming to retreats, reading tapes. All of these can encourage you along the way and over a period of time help develop the kind of mind that really becomes interested in what's happening. That becomes very interested in what's happening right then and there. And maybe the priority starts to develop of that being increasingly 
important in your life and for it to be less and less necessary to always import something from outside to make life fulfilled. To constantly reach outside of ourselves. That is, the process of just living wakefully can be quite fulfilling. Independent of what what turns up. Now, I don't know if this sounds remote or romantic to you, but enough people have done it and have discovered it. It's within our range. It's not something that's reserved for a few special mystics or yogis in the Himalayas or anything of that sort. It's more and more to really become awake to our life, how we actually live. There's always, or very often, a question on people's minds. Okay, I, I think I got a pretty good idea of what the teachings are about during this weekend, but that was mainly me sitting alone and being quiet. And what about relationship? Because once we leave here, so much of our time is spent in the presence of others. Well, one thing, obviously, I'm not going to go give any, if I, assuming I could, uh, cure for the problem of relationship. But if meditation doesn't help us with relationship, then it would be a pretty sad endeavor that we're engaged in. That means we're putting in all this hard work and we still do not know how to be with other human beings, considering the fact that so much of our life is spent in each other's presence. And it seems to be true. It's a combat zone. Relationship is is often uh, a war zone. We all have gotten so hurt in it. It's so difficult. It seems that with all the advances and all the things we've learned, going up high and going down into the ocean, we haven't learned how to live with each other. So how can this simple technique or approach be transferred into relationship. I'm not going to suggest any answers, but just to show you that the basic principle is identical. What has been emphasized during the weekend over and over and over again, and if you were to stay here longer, certain aspects of it would be stressed even more, is one, a reminder to turn to the present moment. We constantly drop out of the present moment. And if, let's say, we've set the breath for ourselves, then, as you know, we lose the breath many, many times. And so, you've been reminded, please come back. Please remember to turn to this present moment now. In this case, let's say it's the breath. And so, we lose the breath and then we come back. Or we find ourselves not in the moment, we realize it and we come back. That takes effort to come back. The Buddha called it right effort. It's one meaning of right effort. To turn towards what is actually happening right now. Granted that we have done that. Let's say we've turned and now we're on the breath. Then the question comes, can we stick to the breath or do we slip off it? It's sort of like a a greased something or other. We bring awareness, oh, there's the breath, we slip right off it. And there we are somewhere else. Or can little by little we learn how to stick to the breath, stay with it, 
whether you want to call it concentration or whatever word, increasingly that becomes possible. You not only get to the object, but you're able to stay there. And not only are you able to stay there, but now you're able to discern what's happening to the object as you stay there. So your concentration and mindfulness, a kind of discernment, grow out of this. We've taken the energy, the time, the idea in our mind how to be there, the right thought, the direction, oh, get back to the breath, or get back to the present, you're off somewhere. Okay, I will. And the mind turns to the present. Then perhaps more and more it can stay with what's happening. And as it's able to do that, it starts to be able to distinguish the subtlety, the characteristics of what we're attending to. And refinement comes about in the mind. And all of them are important. They're all needed. Because if you just have a, a, a laser-like a laser beam-like mind, that could be tremendously helpful, but we also need some sensitivity and some interest. What is this? What's happening right now? So we've been encouraging that process over and over. Now, if you were to stay here a bit longer, the, the subtlety and refinement in the noticing would be emphasized. In the weekend, it's just quite a bit just to get, to turn towards objects and to try to stay there and to see what's happening. And more and more that would be emphasized. Subtlety and noticing. Okay, so that's a paradigm and you've been doing it without even all of my language, you've been doing it. Now you're home and you find yourself in the presence of another person or persons or in a complex task, a job. It really in principle is no different. Let's say you're having a problem with your partner. Can you remember to turn to what is actually happening in the moment? To be awake to what is happening in the moment. Let's say you feel you're, something is going on with your partner and you're irritated. Can you, can you turn, can you have the energy, the willingness to turn towards that irritability? Can you stay with it long enough to begin to see what it is and perhaps understand it. Now, there is a difference, it's true. Here, our responsibility has been entirely to ourselves. Now, there's someone else. Okay, we've used the same thing of attending to what's happening and seeing with as much subtlety, as much insight, as much clarity as we can what it is we're attending to. And let's say it's this irrit- irritability that you have. If you're in a relationship, then it's necessary to share that with the other person. And as you probably know, all of us have a difficult time doing that. There's often a big time lag. Remember two years ago when you did that? (laughs) And I think it seems if men are worse at it than women. I'm not sure about that. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I'm positive. (laughs) Just speaking for one vote. So that let's say you see that there's something that you don't like about your partner or something that they've done. And assuming you've, you've brought attention to it and you stay with it because there may be tremendous incentive to not. Okay, the next sensible thing is, of course, let's say to share it with your partner. And then fear comes up. Oh, they won't like me or uh, they won't feel they're having a good relationship if I constantly keep telling them to change. So you might have to look at that fear. And 
I don't know how many more steps we have to go through, but at a certain point, we might actually get to talk to the other person and to share with them what's happening. Okay, now, if both people are not necessarily practicing Vipassana, but if both people are committed to self-understanding in some form, to personal freedom in some form, to compassion in some form, to sanity in some form, it seems clear that the practice of awareness, whatever version of it you're using, is an enormous help in helping to help you to keep up with the present and helping you to see the many games that we play and helping to become more honest and helping to learn about, here's a next, something we couldn't do very much of here, but when you get home, you can do a lots of it. Right speech. The Buddha talked about right speech. When you begin to talk to your partner or anyone else, more and more, you may be able to develop the sensitivity to hear what's actually coming out of your mouth. It's often quite painful. That's why we don't listen so carefully. But you'll start to see that some of the things we say are simply not true. Or they're designed to get a particular effect. Or they're exaggerations or understatements or smoke screens or whatever. And right speech gets refined out of the constant or frequent use of wrong speech. It's not that we suddenly decide I'm going to be a totally honest person. Uh, You read George Washington's biography and suddenly you decide you're going to be completely honest. I will never tell a lie. But rather, it's out of these half-truths and lies and uh, harsh communication distortions as we become more sensitive to them and, and as we see what they do, how they hurt us and others, that it doesn't work. So it's not... I'm not preaching or moralizing. I'm appealing to your intelligence. So that now awareness is brought into the interaction process itself. It's not just sitting. But it's the same awareness. It's the same, if you can develop it, commitment to stay with what is. To move with your life as your life is lived out, is being lived out. And every step along the way, there'll be uh, dead ends and periods of understanding and insight and periods where we betray our understanding. We know full well what we want and what we don't want and what to say and what not to say, but we betray ourselves, perhaps out of fear. And maybe we learn what that's about and how it doesn't work. Then perhaps we start to live our understanding, become a little bit more courageous in relationship, in our job, in the way we conduct ourselves. But central to it, or what can be central to it, is this very simple practice that we've been learning, which is to stick to the present, to fully experience what is actually happening now. All I can say is I wish you all well, as I wish myself well, in this attempt to bring the practice into our lives so that the practice is full-bodied. It's not some kind of hothouse. We don't become hothouse plants being only able to be very serene and peaceful and kind if we're in special settings like IMS, CIMC and all other, other initial places. Or just this corner of my room where I have a picture of some teacher and nice plants and a beautiful prayer rug and some great books. Whenever I get into that room, no problems. Why do I have to go out into that world anyway? Well, if you don't, great. But most of us seem to. And so, 
it's not a luxury item, it's an absolute necessity for the practice to be brought into where we live. And since it looks like most of us, or perhaps all of us, are not monks or nuns, not living a monastic existence, or uh, some lay people live a monastic existence as well, but we're in the world, so then it seems just common sense that we have to learn how to bring the practice right where we live. Now, this is not a radical or innovative statement that I've just made because when the teaching began roughly 2,500 years ago, the Buddha put forward this teaching in exactly this way. Mindfulness in all postures is a recurrent statement. Sitting, standing, lying down and walking. It's shorthand for pay attention to your whole life. It's not just when we fold our legs. So thank you for staying in there on this very difficult, you know, doing a retreat in a sauna bath. And please try to put the simple practice into action and see what happens. Can we have a moment of silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.